Guys, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue this wonderful story that we've been working through for the last few weeks. Um, This morning, we're in Ruth chapter 4. If you're just jumping in this morning, bear with me. We're we're now towards the the very last portion of the story. Um, We're going to read it, and then I'll do my best just to kind of fill in some of the blanks and and add some context. Um, But we're actually going to only read a portion of chapter 4 this morning, and we will finish the story next Sunday. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife. And we shall stop there. Thank you, Jacob. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we we consider the story that we call Ruth, Lord, these words that we've just read, would you speak to us? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts, even our minds, and help us to hear your voice? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a simple story. Um, it's 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 a beautiful story, is it not? It starts out, um, like any good story, with uh, tragedy. Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, it opens with the line, in the days that the judges ruled. It's a reference to the previous book, the book that came before the book of Ruth. 
And um, it's a time during the history of God's people where things have gone terribly wrong. And in fact, there's um, the implication that God is actually um, dealing with his people, if I can put it that way. There's a famine in the land. That's usually code word for God's people have rebelled again. They've lost their way, and now God in his uh, mercy is actually engaging with them, judging them even, disciplining his children um, in hopes that maybe they'll come to their senses. So that's kind of the picture. Uh, Naomi is married to Elimelech. They have two sons. They're dealing with the famine, and they go to the land of Moab, the foreign land, in hopes that maybe they'll find food there. Um, all of the men end up dying. And Naomi is just left with her two daughters-in-law. One of them is Ruth. Um, Naomi's essentially given up hope. She's like, look, I'm as good as dead. Uh, God has cursed me. I left full, but now I'm empty and I'm bitter and it's all God's fault and it's just pure tragedy. Until Ruth, this, uh, this young woman, Naomi's daughter-in-law, the widow of Malon makes this incredibly courageous choice to stick with Naomi. She could have gone home to her family. She, she would have been well within her rights. She had been released by Naomi to go ahead and uh, seek rest with her immediate family. But she says, no, no, I'm going to stick with you. Whatever happens, I'm with you. And so Ruth becomes the faithful friend. Um, I just, it's got to be emphasized. Ruth is an amazing woman. I mean, usually in these stories, like the, the, in the end, the, you, you realize like the humans are, are pretty human. Like even the best of us are still pretty, um, pretty flawed. Now, I reckon Ruth wasn't perfect by any means, but the way the story is told Ruth is an incredible woman. She's brave, courageous, bold, virtuous, faithful. Um, as the story progresses, we meet another um, pretty incredible person, Boaz. Boaz sees Ruth. He recognizes what she's done. Word gets out that Ruth is um, a worthy woman. What an incredible young lady. And um, all of a sudden, there's like a spark of hope in the middle of this otherwise utterly tragic story. Hope. Spark of hope in a very, very dark place. Um, chapter 3. All of a sudden, we realize this is a story of redemption. Boaz. He's the kinsman redeemer. They hadn't planned it. They, there's no way they could have, have, have known. But all of a sudden, Ruth realizes she's working in the field of the, the very one who potentially was, is within his right, even legal obligation, to actually care for Naomi and Ruth, the widows, the orphans. This is, this is an ancient life insurance if uh, your husband died, then it would go to the next of kin to make sure like the, 
the family is taken care of. It's the honorable thing to do, and it's the way, way the little ones and the, um, the vulnerable were cared for. And so Boaz, he's, um, he appears on the scene, and now we realize, oh, this, this, this is a story of redemption. Now towards the end of the story comes the twist, because any really good story has a twist. It turns out, as we've just read, there's two redeemers. It's not as simple as, oh, Boaz, the hero, Ruth, the incredible woman of courage. They come together and they live happily ever after. No, there's a twist. There's a second redeemer. In fact, this other redeemer, this other unnamed character, um, technically, he's the next in line. So Boaz, he has to gather the elders of the city and have a moment where they sit down and they say, look, I don't know if you've heard, but Naomi's back. And um, she's trying to sell her family property so as to survive. So it goes to you. Will you buy the land? Will you redeem Naomi? And uh, he says, yeah, of course. Of course. And all of a sudden, it's not just Boaz. Two redeemers. This is the twist in the plot. So... This isn't merely a story of redemption. The book of Ruth, it's actually a story that gets us close to the heart of the Redeemer. Now we have a couple of characters that are being contrasted to Redeemers. This tells us something about the heart of the Redeemer himself. Let's talk about the two Redeemers. So we have Boaz, right? And then this other guy. Let's call him Barry. Barry and Boaz, the two redeemers. Now, Barry, whoever this guy is, wherever he came from, technically, legally, as I said, he is within his rights to redeem the land. And it would seem like perhaps this is, a, this is his lucky day. There's a widow with some property. Presumably, Barry's also a farmer. And so buying some more land, obviously, that would help Naomi. She's in need. Um, and for a local farmer, this, this could be good. Just came up on some land. So he says, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem her. I'll redeem her. And then, as we've just read, Boaz says, oh, well, there is, there is one other thing. Just understand, when you buy the land, when you redeem um, Naomi, you also get Ruth, her widow daughter-in-law, the young Moabitess, the widow of Malon. You know what? I just remembered. I, now that I think about it, what I meant to say was, I can't redeem her. Because that's right. Now, I was, I was, I was confused, but I, now that I'm, I'm understanding right, I, I can't because I've got a situation uh, with the impairment of the inheritance. And so, sorry, I, I just, I, I, I can't do it. And that's how I read the story. All of a sudden, when Barry realizes that this redemption situation is actually going to cost him more than he realized, he suddenly changes his mind. That's one redeemer. Of course, Boaz is unlike that redeemer. Boaz was already prepared to buy the land 
to provide for Naomi, obviously Ruth, no matter the cost. He understood the cost. That's another kind of redeemer. So this isn't merely a story of redemption. This is a story about the heart of the redeemer. Remember who your redeemer is. Remember what your redeemer is like. Barry, I like to think of him more as um, like an investor. He's the redeemer who sort of adds it all up, looks at the bottom line, and then decides if it's really worth redeeming the situation. He's a businessman. He's prudent. He's calculated. He's an investor. What would you call Boaz? What would you call Boaz? Honorable? Well, if Barry's an investor, I would call Boaz a lover. You could pick another word if you'd like. Something about Boaz. This isn't just a transaction for him. He's not thinking about the bottom line. Clearly, he is not necessarily going to profit on this, off of the situation. Something about Boaz, call him honorable, call him virtuous. It reveals something about the heart of the Redeemer. It reveals something to us about the heart of God. Because if you hadn't figured it out, this is really who the story is all about. The story is being written to a people who are living in the wake of like very, very difficult times. They're dealing with the reality, the felt reality of hopelessness. Remember how the story started. Naomi, the widow, the woman who used to be called pleasant, now she says, don't call me that anymore. I'm not pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about this. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She's angry. And rightly so, her life has fallen apart. And not just, this is just a, a snapshot of one family. But think about all of the families and all of the people who had died, all of the violence that had been done, all of the injustice these people were living in. And now God says, let me tell you a story. This is the story of Ruth. It's to remind us or anyone that's dealing with the reality of bitterness and hopelessness and injustice and like the hard, hard, complicated stuff of life. This is the heart of God. This is what our Redeemer is like. It's not merely a story of redemption because everyone loves that story. It's a story that's meant to remind us of what our Redeemer is like. Um... Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. 
when Israel sought for rest. That word comes up uh, multiple times in the book of Ruth. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to me from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Obviously, this is a uh, different story. But this is the heart of God. And by the way, the context of Jeremiah 31, um, once again, God has had to, um, how can I put this without, well, you'll get triggered one way or another. Um, The story of the Bible is a story of like really broken people constantly rebelling against God. It just happens over and over. It's like on repeat. God rescues his people. He loves his people. He sacrifices for his people. And there's a big party. And then like within days, they all forget like, oh, yeah, like let's go. Let's go back to to our old ways, our old life, our old idols, whatever. And, um, And they do that for a while. And then God's like, what about... Did you forget? Did you forget your first love? Did you forget the covenant that we established? Did you forget how I rescued you? Did you forget how much I love you? And it's as if God's people are like, who are you again? Hello, do I know you? And God's like, and then God judges his people like severely. It's shocking. This is the heart of God. Talk about the fear of God, the wrath of God. Like, this is not just sort of, um, you know, some weird, extreme, outlier thing that happens once or twice. Like, this is the story of God over and over and over. And no matter how bad it gets, God keeps coming back. He says, don't forget how much I love you. Whatever else happens... Don't forget that. I love you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness towards you. That's the heart of the Redeemer. How often do we forget what our Redeemer is like? How often do we choose Barry over Boaz? How often do we act like it? What does that even mean? What what would life have been like if Barry redeemed Ruth? What kind of relationship would that have been? Okay, I'll redeem this. What was her name again? Ruth. Ruth. Where is she from? Moab? Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Um, It feels risky. It feels like I might take a loss, but fine. Let's let's go. Get get in in the car. How how much much for the the land? Because I really just want the land. Okay, great. Here's my sandal. Done. And they begin a relationship, some, some sort of a relationship. And uh, Ruth knows that she's in debt to Barry. 
She knows that actually, like, I'm a liability. And perhaps she's motivated. Perhaps she's thinking to herself, well, I, if I, I can, perhaps I'll prove my worth. Perhaps if I, can, if I can give him something that's like worth his while, if I can prove my value, then, then maybe, maybe I'll, I'll prove to him that I, that I was worth the risk. That it, it wasn't that costly and that I, that I am valuable. And so she lives her life thinking I must prove my worth. And how does that cause a person to live their life? Because have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a relationship where you think, like, I, I don't know how secure I am in this relationship? And it's partly why I'm such a defensive person, because I'm deeply insecure. And I feel like if anyone ever questions my value, I have to prove that I am valuable, that I am worth being loved, that I'm worth your time. And I'll extend grace to others, perhaps, until they're no longer worth it. That's life with Barry. It's the redeemer who pays the price, but you are aware that you are in debt to him. It's a very, very insecure life. What about life with Boaz? Pays the price for redemption. Invites Naomi to join his family, to be his wife. Perhaps Ruth might be tempted to think, gosh, why on earth did he go out on a limb for me? Why, why would he do that? It seems like a really risky investment. God, help me to bear sons, right? That's, that's how it would have gone down in the ancient days. And she's thinking, man, I hope I can, I hope I can make it up to, to Boaz. I hope I can, I can prove to him that I am worth the sacrifice. And but Boaz would say, hang on a second, my love. Um, remember when before you even knew how I felt about you, I gave you the barley. And I was already willing to give you so much. And when it came down to it, I had already decided long ago that I want to redeem you, this woman. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of the everlasting lover. And when you get married to that redeemer, there is no paying off your debt. Have, have you ever caught yourself thinking like, man, I really, I want to, I want to somehow prove to God that I was worth the sacrifice. I want to pay off my debt. Have you ever thought that? Maybe like subconsciously. You know that's like super bad theology. That's good news. You have bad theology. Good news. We can never, ever pay back our Redeemer. Not just because it's astronomical, but because he's already paid it for us. It's not like, have you ever transferred your debt from one credit card to another with a lower APR? Remember that? Do people still do that? 
I did that a lot in my 20s, and someone told me eventually, like, that's actually not great for your credit. And sometimes we think that that's how it works with God. Like, Jesus, like, pays my debt. He suffers and dies for me. But somehow that was just sort of like a debt transfer. Better interest rate, but I still, now I owe God. You ever thought that? Am I the only one? And the father comes to the son, and before the son can even, for, even complete his dad, I'll pay you back, I promise, speech, the father's like, you owe me nothing. I've already paid for it. It's all been paid for. It's finished. It's done. Debt cleared. Zero. Now I love you. Come in the house. Join my family. Receive my gifts. Allow me to clean you, to cover you, to bless you. And every time you begin thinking to yourself, I must prove to God my worth. Bad theology. Stop thinking that way. The words um, repent. Change your thinking. You cannot pay back your redeemer. That, oh my goodness, that's called a deep, deep, deep security. You begin to live your life as if somewhere deep in the core of your being, you know that you are loved. You are the beloved. And it, it's so deep, it's, um, it's more than just knowledge. It's um, revelation. It's like something um, that begins to affect your very identity. It changes the way you see yourself in the mirror. This person who was once a liability, who is now beloved. I am loved. I am loved. I am loved. And God begins to pour his love into the heart of the beloved through his Holy Spirit. Like there's an experiential dynamic to it. You are loved. You are loved. And even when you feel like you've become indebted once again, you are loved. You are loved. You are a beloved child of God. That's, that's, that gets us right to the essence of what we call Christianity. God loved the world, all of us, so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for me, for you, to pay my debt, to clear my debt, and welcome me home. And then God proceeds to, um, quite aggressively at times, convince me that I am his beloved. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. We are the Ruth. Nothing to prove. Romans 8 says this. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because our Redeemer 
is a lover. He doesn't redeem us and then expect us, like, you better, you better prove your worth. You better work hard. No, nope, doesn't work. We're just loved. No debt, nothing to prove. Oh, and the proof that I have been redeemed is evidenced in my willingness to lay my life down for others. This is why it says in uh, 1 John 4, I love because he first loved me. And so you might be thinking, like, so, so, so God has like zero expectations of me? No, 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 no. No, of course, God expects me to, to obey him, uh, to, to share his love with others. I mean, Jesus makes a big deal out of He wants to teach us how to lose our lives, how to, how to lay our lives down for others, to put the interest of others before myself. It's like, it's like the whole, it's the other part of the story. What happens when I experience the love of God in Christ? What, what is that, so that identity, that, that, that reality that I'm loved, what does it do? I'm not proving something, but the proof that I am loved is evidenced in the way that I begin to share God's love with others. And I still obey God, but now I'm like a child who obeys from the heart, not out of fear of being punished, but out of an, a love. I'm compelled by the love of Christ to reciprocate, to share, to pay it forward, to love like I have been loved. Not to prove something, but simply as proof that I am loved. Jesus says that you, you will prove to be my disciples. You will evidence that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That's, that's called um, the fruit of the Spirit. When God begins to pour his love into my heart, I begin to sprout love. Now you might be thinking, gosh, super basic. Yeah, it is. Isn't it hard? Isn't it wonderful and hopefully deeply, deeply challenging? You know what I find to be the very hardest thing about being a follower of Jesus? It's learning how to be loved. It's so hard. Learning how to be loved. Learning how to receive love. I always want to earn it. I always want to earn it. One could say I've been conditioned to earn it. And when I'm not doing well, I feel like I don't deserve it. God is on this uh, quest to convince me that he is the lover. I'm not an investment. I'm not a business partner. I'm his beloved. He's not expecting me to pay him back. He wants me to receive his love. That's how the kingdom comes. That's how transformation happens in the family of God. When we receive God's love, now we have something to share with others. I was reading The City uh, this week. You guys know what I mean by that? Reading, you ever read The City? You ever drive around reading the graffiti? You know, if you listen, the city will talk to you. Some of us. So I was driving around uh, listening to the city, and um, half the graffiti is completely um, 
illegible. But this one was not. It said, love isn't real. And if I had a phone that could take pictures, I would have gotten it. Um, but I don't. <clears throat> love isn't real. Is it? Is it? Isn't it? What do you think about that? It's one thing to talk about it, preach about it, listen to someone go on about it. But is it real? Is it real? I think most of us spend um, large portions of our life hoping it's real, but often not feeling the reality of love, of being loved. Being loved not by Barry, but by Boaz. Real love. God's love. Everlasting love. I wonder um, if our world isn't desperate to, to see it, feel it, experience it, lived out. People are hurting. Heck, I'm hurting. I'm, I'm loved, but I still got a way to go. I often feel insecure, and I often get defensive. I often judge people around me. You know that. You just look across the aisle. Like, what's your problem? Why are you living this way? Why do you think like that? We often feel compelled to qualify God's love. God's loving, but let's not condone sin. You know, I'm getting really tired of hearing that. Can I be real? Not because it's not true, but why do we always have to qualify God's love? Why do we have to add a but? Or let's make sure we don't get carried away with love. Really? We're worried about getting carried away with love? I think it's good. Some of you are like, that's not good. <laughs> I don't like that. Okay. But love isn't real. When you're listening to the city and you see that tagged on the sidewalk, love isn't real. It makes you wonder, like, you know, they're not wrong in saying it because a lot of people have never felt it they've heard about it but many of us live our lives perpetually try to prove that I'm lovable and I wonder what would the world look like what would our church what would my life look like if I began to live as the beloved and if I woke up every day and said Barry go away I'm rolling with Boaz Today, I refuse to earn God's love. I refuse to somehow pay back God, prove to him that I'm worth his investment. Lord, would you fill me with your love? That sort of life, that sort of love, it causes you to see the whole world differently. And the people that used to just sort of annoy you and disgust you or confuse you, you begin to see as beloved children of God, people who need to feel love, to know that they are loved despite their mess. Not because sin's okay or we're condoning it, but because this is how God loves. He loves us first. And then he begins to treat us like kids and discipline us and do all sorts of gnarly things. It's quite a ride. 
but he loves us. Mm. We live in a record-keeping world of rights and retaliation. Preserve what power you have for you and your tribe. Jesus invites us to join a different tribe, a different flock with a different shepherd, where God teaches us to be loved and empowers us to love our enemies. Remember that bit? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. This kind of love. By, by the way, the two redeemers, that wasn't just like an original idea. I realized, oh, Jesus told this same story. But instead of uh, farmers, he, he, told, he used two shepherds. He says there's two kinds of shepherds. There's the thief who's just there for the money. And as soon as he sort of assesses the situation, you're like, ah, this ain't worth it. I'm out. That's one kind of shepherd. But Jesus says there's another kind of shepherd, the good shepherd, who's not in it for a paycheck, who's not just trying to get his investments worth. He loves the sheep and he lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says this, and I lay it down of my own accord. This is John chapter 10. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes my life. I lay it down myself. And oftentimes we, we mistake the love of God as this sort of like passive kind of weakness. Oh, but what about, what, if, what about my interests? What if people walk all over me? What if, if I put the interests of someone else before myself? What about my rights? What about your rights? Are you loved or are you not? Jesus teaches us to relinquish our rights. I have nothing to prove to anyone because I am loved. I'm loved by the king. Nothing in heaven or on earth will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ. When that gets into your identity... All of a sudden, the whole world starts to change. And instead of trying to win arguments, begin to win people. I want to see the graffiti say, God is real and his love is for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come into this place and experience love. Will your sin be challenged? Of course it will be. Welcome to the family. People need freedom from sin. Yeah? 100%. That's like part of the loving thing. Like, don't, I don't need you to tell me I'm a sinner. Well, maybe I do. More than that, I need you to tell me how I can be set free from my sin. Awesome. You're in the right place. But more than anything, you know how that's going to happen? You're going to be loved. You're going to be loved. And on your very, very worst day, when you show up here thinking that everyone, this is it. You know how people will show up and be like, this is, I'm going I'm to prove it to myself once and for all. These people are going to reject me. Watch. Watch it happen right now. And they show up in this place, and they're acting awful, and they're doing their thing, and they're just sinning all over the place. And what do we do? What do we do? We form a circle, put them right in the middle, and just go, shame, shame. <laughs> Now, we do whatever the opposite of that is. We get close. We do what God does. We get close. We draw near. 
should talk to me. What's going on? What's going on? Why are you acting this way? Did you forget you're loved? Why, why are you trying to... Um, why are you trying to front? Come here, let me love you. Let me get close to you. Man, you smell. That's all right. That's all right. Let me cover you. So there it is. The heart of the Redeemer. This is the heart of God. Can we stand together, please?